This is The Thirst Tank, presented by Trap Brewing Company. I mean, we, we've always done a lot of collaboration brews, and, and, and in my early days, that was, I was learning. It was like I want to work with professional brewers and learn from them. And I remember one of my first ever brew at ours was uh, Shane Swindles from Cheshire Brewhouse came down and showed me how to use our kit. <laughs> I was doing it all wrong. He's like, what are you doing? <laughs> Why don't you leave that valve open and turn and leave the pump running? I'm like, oh, yeah, th- thanks, Shane, yeah. Um, but the community, I think, it, it, on a professional scale, is it, it's, a, it's as vibrant. I still pick up the phone two or three times a week to different brewers, and we chat about stuff. Hello, and welcome back to The Thirst Time, the show that takes a deep dive into the careers and journeys of some of the most creative minds in the craft beer industry today. Today's guest is Andy Parker, founder and managing director of Elusive Brewing. Andy came by the brewery for a collaboration and I completely sprung this interview on him and myself. Uh, It was just after our festival, Welcome to the Neighbourhood. So my head was in the clouds a little bit, but despite my festival-induced days, we had a great conversation talking about Andy's passion for homebrewing, West Coast IPAs, and how their flagship beer, Oregon Trail, came to be. Now, if you're listening to this close to its release, you'll be able to purchase the beer that we uh, created together, which is a beer that I'm so glad we've brewed, an American Red IPA. Possibly, I know we've done some red ales, but I don't think we've really gone to the IPA territory. So it's a first for us, but it's crisp, beautiful malt character and with big hits of bitter orange and dark fruits, uh, a real joy. And yeah, it's available online now, if you are listening to this, uh, within the time of our release. Um, Sorry, slight digression there. So, Andy... He began as a passionate home brewer before venturing into the world of brewing and eventually founding Elusive Brewing. The sense of community and relationships forged during his home brewing days continue to be a significant part of Andy's life, and he's even authored books like Camera's Essential Guide to Home Brewing. I really hope you enjoy this one. Um, a big thanks to Andy for doing this totally out of the blue. <laughs> I think I've done enough talking now anyway. So let's get into it. You are listening to Track Brewing Co. Presents The Thirst Time, and this is our interview with Andy Parker. And we start with that all-important question, what was that first beer for him? I suppose the beer that really ignited my interest in beer uh, was probably uh, De Conink, which is a Belgian amber ale. Mm-hmm. Um, and it goes back to... Um, I was in the US for a while, worked in the US in the late 90s, moved back in like 2000 and was working in London and uh, became friends with a guy called Dave, uh, Dave Watkins, if you're listening, hello. And um, <laughs> basically we used to go to a place like the Rake, like the, um, the there was a, a Belgian, couple of Belgian bars in London um, and one called the Dovetail in Clerkenwell and um, they had some draft Belgian beers and uh, Deconic was one of them uh, and I just love that beer and it yeah. kind of... First beer I'd had. I mean, before that, I was really into like my cast best bitters. Uh, big fan of London Pride, Flowers yeah. Best. They they flowers were required in the the mass kind of buy up. Um, but I never really was tasting beer mm-hmm. until that point. Um, and even living in the US, um, 
I tried Sierra Nevada. I thought it was way too bitter. Couldn't really drink it. Quite likes Angostin. That's um, so funny knowing the beers that you produce. Yeah, like know, yeah. <laughs> uh, it tastes sweet these days. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Deconic was the one. And then we started going to, uh, me and Dave and our partners, we'd go to Belgium for Belgian Beer Week and uh, just fell in love with Belgian beers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after that kind of probably... 2010, 11, around then, started to get the US imports and trying the um, the big hoppy West Coasts and then started homebrewing. And those were the beers that I started to try and kind of copy at home. Yeah. Uh, the first, my first ever homebrew was a clone of Green Flash West Coast IPA, which is a classic kind of caramel coloured, or it was, they changed it, uh, West Coast with like loads of sea hops and 7%, uh, super bitter. Um, and those were the beers that, that really got me into brewing. Mm-hmm. And what kind of time, just like timeline, and also it's funny, isn't it, because we look at that early journey and you kind of skipped through loads of phases then, you compressed it down, but from the point of like drinking and going to Belgium to homebrewing, what kind of timeline is that? So, yeah, working, um, I guess working in London would have been, yeah, the early 2000s, like 2001, two, around, yeah, one, two, three, around then. Uh, and the Belgian stuff kind of started soon after that, going mm. to Brussels and so on. But I didn't really start homebrewing um, in anger till 2012. Um, so it's quite a long gap. And in, in that gap, it was, uh, yeah, uh, you know, really, Belgium was my beer was my passion. And uh, in the early days of Elusive, we tried to reflect that a little bit in what we did, and we still do a little bit. But uh, these days, it's, it's kind of gone more West Coasty in what we do. But um, Yes, it is quite a long period, but um, it, it's kind of a, um, yeah, the homebrewing to where we are now is also quite a long period. It's kind of like yeah. a 20 year, 20 odd year stretch. Yeah, and you compressed it into about five <laughs> seconds. <laughs> but um, it's interesting that the Bel- like Belgian beers took your heart, but not necessarily what you were trying to homebrew at first. And I guess that's just because of the nature of them, that it's, it's a complex beer that feels very yeah definitely um a lot of the belgian beer is is very nuanced in yeah in what you do a lot about the fermentation and the yeast esters and all that and it's not as easy maybe to master as a novice home brewer although that said i mean one of i think my second ever home brew was the beer that's now lord nelson which was a nelson hop, hop, hop saison amazing uh, but the um i didn't have any temperature control so the saison yeast obviously loved that and you know kind of drew loads of esters and it turned out quite nice but um, yeah, I think, um, and I think back now to Bruno's Belgian beers, I don't think we ever really, I never really mastered one at home. Uh, apart from that, that season was nice, but I tried brewing triples, doubles, mm-hmm. uh, Belgian ambers, like back to the Conink, and nev- they never really turned out well. Um, was never really happy with them. So I think that was, I think if you look at Belgium and its brewing history and heritage, um, a lot of that has, has it's about the region and about the ingredients, the yeast, and mm-hmm. it's all very you know, hard to replicate in many ways. But that's, yeah. And I, I think that's what makes them almost so special, isn't it? And then I guess like losing yourself to actually go in there and being in those places. Um, it's just, it's got such a romance about it, I think. Um, so homebrewing. Homebrewing is a huge part of you as a brewer. You know, like you're yeah. here today, Matt's, you know, he entered home brewing competitions. Yeah. That that was his kind of gateway in. So from the simplest setup, how did it begin to, to how did it end when you were doing home brewing? The home brewing, um, well, actually, it actually started when I was in the US because I was missing 
best bitter and me and my housemate um, <laughs> that's so funny me and my housemate brewed it. I came back for Christmas and took back um, one of the kits you could get in boots uh, and you basically you rehydrated this multi powder uh, and you fermented it and, and um, yeah that didn't turn out well at all we invited friends around for Super Bowl Sunday to try it uh, were they American? Were they, they Americans? Yeah, as well? Americans. Wow. Yeah, from our local bar. You, should, you need to try best bitter. It's yeah, like, come and try it's proper English Britain. beer. Yeah. Also, you know, the, the instructions were like ferment it in the airing cupboard or whatever. So we hung it up in the garage, and the garage, the garage in California was like a steady twenty-eight degrees. Like mm-hmm. the tumble dryer was going, you know, it was really warm. And this bag just—it was like a bag that you hung up. And I remember opening the tap, and it blowing the glass out of my hand. It came out so violently, um, and it was awful. But yeah, it didn't put me off. But I suppose when I first started homebrewing um, properly back in the UK, 2012, um, I, I had a like the classic cool box mash tun mm-hmm. converted picnic box with a tap in it and a little filter. And I was learning um, from YouTube, from people on Twitter, um, yeah, YouTube especially. There, there was um, David Bishop, a friend of mine, who um, was the original brewer at Northern Monk going way back to no way. when they were cuckoo brewing. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, he was brewing at home. He used to do a blog and he used to read his blog and we became friends. And Adrian at Wishbone Brewery used to blog every Sunday and I was just chatting online. And, and um, yeah, we used to just, yeah, it was a little community online and um, that kind of encouraged me on. And, and then entered my first competition and got my first medal and joined the homebrew club. Uh, I remember meeting Matt years ago. Yeah. Um, Matt won the nationals with a, a breaded porter. Ask him if it was meant to be Bretty. Uh, ask him that story. Get him on the podcast. Yeah, well, uh, he, he's going to be a guest. And that, that's his, yeah, his breakthrough beer that, like, led him to become a brewer might not have been the deliberate uh, beer that he, he intended. But I did get to try it. It was phenomenal. It was amazing, um, yeah. I think he won a couple of competitions with that, actually, because there was one in Manchester here as well, because um, he won the Nationals with it. But, yeah, um, yeah, uh, it was a little community. And I think once I joined the club, London Amateur Brewers, um, it really, uh, yeah, I really improved a lot. And the mm-hmm. feedback that you got was often brutally honest, uh, yeah. but it really helped you to improve. And then, yeah, I just went from there, really, and um, ended up winning a big national competition, and, and the prize was to brew commercially. So the beer that I won it with is now our Level Up American Red. Uh, no way. Nice contrast brew, but we're brewing a red today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's some, some of the recipes in today's, in today's beer, like the, the makeup of the grist. Um, and yeah, that, that was the prize. So it, it was brewed at Dark Star and was launched nationally as a, like a monthly special for them and um, went from there really. And, and with the money that I won from that, which was £5,000. Amazing. Um, was that a national champion? Was that national a national competition? Yeah. yeah, they only ran it twice. Um, and the guy won it a year after me, a guy called Gareth, is now a Pokal Brewing up in Scotland doing no next firm. So the two winners of that competition both went on to, to start breweries. Um, he took a little while longer. Um, it's like the master chef of, uh, of yeah brewing, maybe yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I remember winning that and, and uh, the prize ceremony was in London and, and I, my, my wife Jane was on holiday so I rang my mum and was like mum I won a competition uh, I said what are you going to do I said I'm going to open a brewery and at the time I worked in IT uh, and was um, yeah I didn't quite realise how far away that, that kind of dream was but um, yeah I mean two years later Elusive opened so yeah we got there in the end and, and that money was the deposit on the kit. It's, you know, exactly £5,000 went to Elite Stainless in Swindon and um, we found the rest of the money and, and paid for the rest of the kit yeah, and amazing. got up and running. So. Did you, 
Would you say that if you hadn't have won that competition, the energy would have been there to get Elusive off the ground? Or was that a real kind of like validation in what, what you were pro- producing yeah. and, 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 and gave you an extra boost to go, actually, you know, I could do something with this? Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was, I mean, I'd already, um, in, come 2014, I'd, yeah, because it was January 2014, that competition, or February, um, and I'd already met the guys from Weird Beards at our homebrew club, and they were getting started, and um, they, they, that was very inspirational to me as well, and, mm-hmm. and um, they helped me a lot. Uh, but I think winning that competition definitely gave me the impetus and the, a bit of self-belief, in yeah. a way. Um, and particularly when that beer came out um, commercially, which was about a year later in the end, it, it was launched maybe early 2015 or maybe the end of 2014. Um, and people drinking that and um, enjoying it uh, was phenomenal. And it really mm-hmm. gave me that belief that I could brew commercially. Not really appreciating the whole, the, the, the advice I give out these days, um, or ever since we started was like, you know, brewing is the easy part, like running the business, us, Sam, running a business is a difficult part and the bit that you need to learn. It's a yeah. big learning curve, way bigger than learning to brew. And also, I guess, the thing that might have got you in, which is the brewing, suddenly becomes like less part of your day-to-day role. Yeah, it does. Because you have to hand over the reins and there's so much more to take care of. Has that transition been easy for you? Like, do you, is the part of you that just wishes that it was just you brewing some beer and putting it out or are you happy that it's kind of evolved into like business management as well yeah i mean i'm um i think back to the early days of elusive and it was um ridiculously hard work yeah uh, i mean for the first i think 18 months or so it was just me jay my wife was helping out often on her way home from work um and uh yeah it was a very it was i enjoyed it it was fun it was, we were getting our beers out there but yeah it was phenomenally hard work just yeah. doing all of it doing the deliveries, doing it, running the business, brewing the beer, packaging the beer. Uh, we were on like this weekly cycle and it just felt endless. Um, and then eventually I hired a part-time assistant, Steve, who had, who had worked at Siren and gone traveling on a little bit and came back and he wanted to work part-time, so that was ideal. Uh, and it went from there really, then we hit lockdown and, um, uh, and I think that really transformed the business and we kind of emerged from lockdown in a, in a much better position staffing-wise mm-hmm. and Ruth had joined us, she's now, she's now our MD. Um, and that's allowed me to get a little bit back more to brewing and f- concentrating on that. Maybe not the physical side of it because I'm not getting any younger, but um, try, trying to stay focused on making sure that our beer is the best it can be. And yeah. um, trying to, um, yeah, I mean, we've got uh, Rick, who, who's our full-time brewer, Ian, um, who's starting to do a bit of brewing now, joined us originally doing Dre and a bit of tap room. Um, and it's great, great to be able to work with them and, and help them kind of develop and learn as well. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't really have any... Um, I feel like I've not been dragged too far away from Bruin because we're yeah. still a small company. And every, I mean, I'm, as, we, as we speak now, the rest of the team are, are canning the brewery and there. it's all, all hands on deck so thankfully i was having technical issues and you were having technical issues of a different kind with the canning line yeah that's the nature it's never 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 like never leaves you alone for very long i guess no. <laughs> it's, the, no. it's the message maybe yeah it's funny when i i've told this story probably a few times but when i first kind of came in to, to track and and right in the early days and had this romantic notion of 
what it was for someone to like brew beer and I was like oh you know you just brew your own beer and you can have a beer at the end of the day and, it's, and then seeing Sam and Ollie up the road at the Squawk as well um, doing like 14 hour days running around looking whacked because they were just so tired from having to do it I was like oh this is different to what I imagined yeah. um, if we can jump back into like home brewing and your like initial initial passion I guess and, and the thing that led you into to starting Elusive what part of it was it that excited you the most was it creating something just from raw materials materials that could taste like something you'd never tried before or was it was it trying to replicate or was it was it just the the whole process that that really led you in um I, to be honest I think it was more the um the, I mean it might sound a bit cheesy but the community because there was that little squad of us that were brewing at the weekend and uh eventually was sending each other beers in the post and then i joined the club and it was that kind of getting together sitting around the table and discussing what you'd made and how you'd made it uh, and what you'd change about it and all that kind of feedback i really like and i still do enjoy that aspect of it i still love doing kind of the meet the brewer events and going to talk to people about what we do um love working with homebrew clubs and you know chatting to homebrewers um I think that's the aspect of what I enjoyed the most. I think also um, improving technically, like um, think back to that first West Coast IPA uh, and, you know, the mistakes that I made. It was all, it's still there on my blog. Uh, and the comments are like, why, what, why did you do that? What, what, what? <laughs> um, all the basic stuff I got wrong. Um, and that kind of evolving and learning is any new skill. But brewing, because you get beer at the end of it, it felt especially exciting. Yeah. Um, so I, I definitely got hooked on learning and improving and that's what dragged me along and it was those american beers that really started like elusive you know to those that know elusive it is feels like classic american hoppy bitter great beers when did that really start forming was that because of your brief time in california or was that just beers that you've started to as you were brewing them felt that your your skills and your abilities were getting better in the department of brewing that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think there's a, a little bit of the, the tail wagging the dog to a degree here, but we started, when I started out, obviously that, that my first ever homebrew was that big West Coast, but we never, I didn't even, we didn't even brew an IPA in our first year or 18 months. Uh, I started out with a smoked Ruby Mild, don't ever do that. And a, and a, a and the it, amount of like people who start like, <laughs> I spoke Danny at Beak and one of his first beers was like a smoked juniper like uh, <laughs> fruited wild thing and he was like yes yeah, I've still got kegs of it also. yeah <laughs> and, and English pale ale and then I got into American hops a bit more and um so we didn't really in our early days you didn't really brew IPA didn't really brew west coast um west coast in style you could argue like the, the clear bitter mm -hmm. type beer uh but the, the the west coast thing I mean really started with Oregon Trail which was a beer that we brewed just before lockdown, end of 2019. Um, there's a, a micropub down in Fairham called the West Street Ale House, and they got in touch. They were a good customer, got in touch, and wanted to brew a collab to launch their beer club. And Steve, um, who's the co-owner there, uh, was like, I've got a fancy, quite fancy brewing a West Coast IPA. Um, I'm like, oh, cool, I've got a recipe, and dug that old one out, and we kind of tweaked it a bit, and, and that beer got brewed as a one-off. And then during lockdown, um, we started canning, and we were contract canning, which meant we had to send a thousand litres off at a time to be, to be canned. So the first two beers we did, I thought we won't do anything hoppy in case oxygen's an issue or whatever, mm -hmm. let, let's learn the process. 
we did a Kolsch style lager and a coffee porter. And those went and they sold well. Obviously, it was locked down and cans were flying out. And then we thought, okay, we've got the process down and um, the DO measurements were okay. So we brewed a couple of hoppy things. And I thought, well, let's go back and brew Oregon Trail because I really liked it. So we brewed that and we brewed a, um, a New England, a collab we'd done with Vibrant Forest called Anomalous Materials. So those two went off and came back. And um, at the time, people were drinking at home a lot, obviously, uh, on social media a lot. And, mm-hmm. and the buzz around Oregon Trail it just really surprised me because it, people were buying it and we, we had great support, uh, as a lot of breweries did, where people were buying online. And then you start to see the old tweak. And this is a really... You know, authentic West Coast people, you know, kind of stuff I remember drinking in 2012, and it's really bitter. It's you know got that orangey, piney thing, and it just took off from there. So that sold out really quickly. We brewed more, and now um, almost I said about the tail wagging a dog, but almost by accident become our flagship beer. Yeah, and it's now uh, well, we've, we've got four FEs at Elusive, and last week it was in two of them. Amazing, um, and it's become. Yeah, it, it now runs the brewery, that beer, I think. Yeah. And, um, it's nice to have been known for, for something and, and to be known for doing West Coast well is, is, means a lot to me because it's, that's kind of where I started. Yeah, it's those accidents and those, you know, that's the making of a brewery, really. It's the same with Sonoma for us. Was just, it was the second beer Sam ever produced and he didn't necessarily have the idea that it was going to be 50% of our production yeah. one day, but it just something about it just captures people and then the next thing you know like it's the foundation of how you can yeah expand or grow it and to have that and to have that uh people respond to it in such a positive way must have been such a good feeling <laughs> yeah really good and now like you get a chance to develop you know i don't know if it's letting people see behind the curtain too much. But like, there's always tweaking as well, isn't there? So once, once you get a beer that you're re-brewing, the hard part of craft brewing is replicating like time yeah. after time. Like the slightest variables have a big difference. So has it been fun like really digging into the mechanics of getting that right and improving it? As it's, yeah, as do you it's know what? That, that's been really um, probably the thing I've learned, technically learned the most from yeah. is Oregon Trail because we... Initially, we were contract canning it, which meant, and we, when you we were filling um, these things called Arlington's, which are giant bag in box cubes, uh, and you can't help but slightly oxidize the beer as it goes into the bag. Yeah. And then it would go off to uh, can it in Bolton, they would put it back in tank and scrub that oxygen back off, and uh, it would lose aroma. So, we were um, initially we were dosing in uh, aroma extract and stuff to try and overshoot mm-hmm. uh, so that what we got back was what was near what was in tank. And then we brought that back in-house um, and we had to try and, in a way, replicate bad process. Um, not on, on, I mean, in terms of transferring and oxidising, yeah. not, not in terms of canning, they're really good. Uh, but, you know, trying to replicate that thing that people liked about it and then bring it back in-house. And then uh, there were a few recipe tweaks around the colour. And uh, I mean, it hasn't changed lots, Oregon Trail, but it's definitely been on a bit of an adventure yeah. over the past three years. Um, but I think now where it is, I'm really happy with it, and, and people seem to really like it. I mean, look at our web shop, and, seems, and we, we, don't, we struggle to keep it in stock a little bit, and as soon as it, it goes in stock, people are buying 12 packs. And that's amazing. So people are into that beer, and that's been what's the make the, the What's the ABV of, of it? 5.8. Like, okay, so it's, yeah, it's a, perf- it's a sweet spot then. For, yeah, I think yeah, so. Low on the kind of IPA scale, but like perfect. Yeah, like quite accessible quite, as an yeah. IPA. You can drink two or three, and you know, you're not going to be falling about. So. Yeah. Um, what I, 
Well, you were saying about like oxidation and stuff. It's funny, isn't it? Because the original American kind of beers that I used to drink <laughs> had this kind of oxidized character that, that I recognize now as like an oxidized character. And I guess, you know, crystal malt maybe got a bad rap or kind of... St- it, some would say that it almost gave the effect of oxidation yeah. in the beer. And a lot of people now, like Matt was saying when he went down the West Coast last year for, for the harvest... That those original like ambery colours and stuff you don't see anyone they drink no, they look really, like lagers it's they really look changed, like yeah, yeah it's like and bitter hopped lager almost in fact like a lot of them are using lager yeast and we yeah, did one recently yeah. um yeah that's an interesting dynamic it is yeah there's a second thing here around age because um that first west coast rpa that i brewed as my first ever home brew i entered it into the london amateur brewers competition in in november when it was five months old uh, just because I had a couple no of balls way. left, and it won bronze. Uh, and because it was, because the IPA category was the first one read out, and they did reverse audit, it was the first thing read out. I'm like, I can't believe this. So when I got got my little rosette, um, and then we were tasting it afterwards, uh, and I'd just come back from, we'd been in the US, and the judges were like, oh, it's really authentic West Coast. But I'm like, it's actually a bit tired and old. <laughs> the thing was that. Um, Back then, that's what we were drinking. That's what we were drinking, yeah, exactly The stuff was that. coming over, and it yeah. was four or five months old. It had been yeah. on a boat, sat warm on the Atlantic, and uh, and they were a bit kind of old and dicey. <laughs> so I think, in a way, I replicated that perfectly by aging it in my garage for five months. Um, but, then, yeah, right, I mean, West Coast, if I think back to uh, cloning Green Flash mm-hmm. uh, as that first brew, that was a lot of crystal, cara. Uh, it was amber in colour, um, and was, yeah, quite chewy, caramelly, uh, but it's... Over the past few, you can still get those on the West Coast for sure, but these days, the, the, what, what I'd call the modern West Coast IPA is almost lager-like in yeah. colour, super, super pale straw colour. Um, not as bitter as they were, maybe. Maybe they dial that back a bit. More about aromatics. Yeah. Um, so lots of mosaic used and these more modern, I'm sounding old now, but these more modern hops um, that weren't used back then. Like there yeah. was a Centennial Simcoe Chinook. That's good. Um, and mosaic is now kind of in there and it's kind of yeah they've it's definitely evolved as a style but then um as drinkers we evolve and i think if you're a green flash of the world green flash ultimately changed the recipe for west coast yeah um and some people didn't like that because it was the original one of the original ones and uh other people thought that was a more modern and interesting take on it so uh yeah these days you look at pliny down the years that's changed yeah Uh, i haven't had one for a long time i would love to kind of see lighter the original recipe that Vinny put out was was caramel it was you know and that's it's definitely changed and that's moved with the times and that's not yeah. a bad thing yeah it's just the evolution of it all i guess but we did one with the pellicle not that long ago and we used vienna and crystal and i was just like i loved it at the end and it had that kind of red orangey hue which i think synonymous with like west coast ipas but like you say is just not seen at all now like yeah. when you look at i don't know green cheek or something who make Incredible beers, but it is as crisp and clear. Yeah, it's pills in the It's pure, 100% pills in the mall. Yeah, I guess that's just the beauty of the evolution of, of beer. And it's interesting, though, because I think Matt, I don't know if struggle is the right word, but he kind of, a lot of people's perception of West Coast over here, he felt was very different to the beers that are getting produced on the West Coast when he went out there. And, yep. you know, because not all of us get a chance to go to California or whatever. So you don't actually know necessarily what's 
what's going on out there. But he was like, yeah, it's, it's these dry hops, like heavily dry hops, like, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So when he was coming back, he was doing that here. And then you, you always get people just like, want more bitterness or this, like, <laughs> this, this kind of thing. And it's, um, it is an interesting evolution, that. And I yeah. think it's a beer that will, I guess it'll keep on changing. And I don't know if you, you've noticed it as well. It seems that it's quite as circular movement brewing like you kind yeah. of move all the way around this 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 globe as it were and come back to like where you started and feel like that's the that's the sweet spot yeah, that's definitely. what i want to create and people will be very happy to know that what we're brewing today is a yeah it's a west coast red ipa yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the beer we're getting nostalgic <laughs> over um which has you know there's not many in the market especially like red IPAs or something like that. Yeah, it's another one a bit like black IPA, uh, where it didn't maybe f- it f- it fall out of fashion. I don't know. It, it's um, they became quite hard to sell. There was yeah. there used to be more of them years ago, I think. And um, as people moved on, they maybe moved away from them a bit. But I think yeah, particularly I mean we're we're, we're at the end of August, heading September. But by the time this is kegged, be getting a bit cooler. Uh, yeah. And I think that'll just be perfect for. You know, kind of sitting in a pub in the evening. Absolutely. Uh, a pint of red ale, you can't beat it. And that kind of marriage of the malt and the hops, I think for me, is amazing in red. You are listening to Track Brewing Co. Presents the First Time, and this is our interview with Andy Parker. How have you found the shift of that, you know, home brewers round a table? to suddenly like, you know, we're collaborating today and it's brewers round the table or over the phone. Yeah. Has that community stayed as strong as it was as a home brewing community? Does that make sense? As in like, have you felt that community still, but in a, a bigger scale, I guess, as, 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 as business yeah, owners? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, we, we've always done a lot of collaboration brews and, and, and in my early days that was... I was learning. Yeah, it was like I want to work with professional brewers and learn from them. And I remember one of my first ever brew at ours was uh, Shane Swindles from Cheshire Brewhouse came down and showed me how to use our kit. <laughs> I was doing it all wrong. He's like, "What are you doing? <laughs> Why don't you leave that valve open and turn and leave the pump running?" I'm like, "Oh yeah, th- thanks, Shane." Yeah, um, but the community, I think, it, it, on a professional scale, is it, it's a, it's as vibrant. I still pick up the phone two or three times a week to different brewers and we chat about stuff. Yeah. Um, whether it's a particular beer style or you know, method or a process or a particular customer or a particular anything, really. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it, that community is still there. I think that community runs quite strongly through what we do. Um, mm-hmm. I think the um, it's probably a little bit different to the homebrewing community in so much as it's, you know, it, for us it's a business and um, there are consequences when you get things wrong and... Uh, as a homebrewer, you felt pre- I always felt pretty fearless and yeah. not really worried about stuff. It was just a bit of fun. Um, although I took it quite seriously, as a lot of homebrewers do, and they should. You know, that's how to get good. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, it, a little, little different. Definitely a, a, a sh- as strong a sense of community, if with slightly different purposes in a way. Yeah, I feel like there's a there's still a camaraderie between homebrewers. So Matt is a homebrewer, like our head brewer. And I think he loves having you here and stuff because you've gone through that journey together. Yeah. And when Ross was here as well, I remember from Flock, you know, he did the homebrew thing. I don't know if he did the competition things. I can't remember as much, but there's just something about 
being a guy in your basement brewing beer yeah. or, or, yeah. or or a woman in your basement brewing beer to, to stepping out into the starting to produce thousands of liters like that yeah. step up and, and the realization of what it takes to actually do that what was your biggest learning curves from home brewer to 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 brewer oh you know i think the the, the toughest thing to learn and get right was packaging because mm. um when i was home brewing i would just bottle condition i did a little bit of kegging towards the end but uh, it was pretty easy if a bit tiresome but um yeah learning to package properly like cask keg and bottle laterally canning uh, is really difficult and you can make the best beer in the world but if you can't package it properly then nobody gets to enjoy it at its best Um, so that was a real learning curve Um, but I think from a going back to what I said about the business side that was a much bigger learning curve I think Mm. Um, and the the bit that in the end ends up taking up more of your time to get right Um, learning about cash flow learning about debt learning about getting paid on time Um, is really uh, yeah just as important if not more so um did you find it hard i think it's hard to like prove yourself isn't it at the start when you start as a business because you're kind of coming out of nowhere. i guess the thing that you had is the accolade of you know some home brewing pedigree that maybe helped but like how did you feel that you you were saying that reading as a local community was very supportive of you and that did that kind of give you the I guess the cash flow to, to carry on, was it working very, like, was your locality really important at the start? Yeah, I think so. Did? I think it's important to every brewery. Um, and I think you really need to find that sense of location, really, because um, brewing and selling beer is a busy, busy market. Mm-hmm. It's oversupplied, in a way. Um, and you've got to find your little niche and carve that niche. And, and you, the, the easiest niche you've got is, is your people on your doorstep, that, the locals. So that's, that's well worth focusing on as a new brewery. And for us, um, when we eventually had beer to sell, um, the first casks, the first van went into Reading, uh, which is about eight miles from the brewery. Um, and we were dropping around to there's four or five great Freer type pubs in, in Reading and they've all supported us and do all still support us. So that, yeah, they're really, a really important of, part of how we've come to be where we are now. And, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, still, still buy beer and always bought beer. And without them, we wouldn't be where we are for sure. So. That's amazing. Yeah, it's uh, it's great, you know, because I think everyone wants to support their local business, don't they? Especially when you you you're a free tribe, uh, free tide pub or something like that. It's like you want to support the breweries around you. Um, I've got to say, like I've sprang this interview on you, like today. You just <laughs> I was like, I think we're going to do an interview, and I've sprang it on myself because I didn't know you were in today, and I hadn't looked at the calendar because we've just been, uh, we've just had the festival this weekend, so it was just like all systems go for that. So it's cool. We're just learning in real time of like, usually I have like loads of questions prepared and stuff like that. Um, so I guess the big question, you know, we've talked about like the West Coast and the, when it comes to like hazy beers and things like that is, do you think that would be a big part of Elusive moving forward or are those beers not necessarily what you are attracted to? Uh, we've, we've brewed some hazy beers. Um... It, it's it's not a. I guess the success of Oregon Trail has dictated it in in a way. I think yeah. before lockdown, we were probably brewing more of those hazy. We had a, a little hazy core beer uh, yeah. called Punch Out with rotating hops that went. Yeah. Because we couldn't brew it dev classy <laughs> anymore. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I do still enjoy. Um, 
I was chatting, chatting along last night about uh, my go-to beers. One of them's uh, Verdant's People Money Space Time, 3.8, yeah. Hazy Pale. Absolutely can sink cans after cans of that. Mm-hmm. And I uh, do enjoy drinking Hazy Pales, uh, but I probably always get drawn towards the, the West Coast. Yeah. Uh, and in terms of our own output, although I'm, I'm, we can brew them, we're, I don't think we'll ever be the best at them. Um, I think there's a... Um, it's an interesting thing where uh, it sticks to what you're good at in a way. And uh, I remember chatting to Adam at Verdon. It was like very much the same. Like, so we found one thing we we're really good at. We did lots of it. Well, they're, they're really uh, funny, aren't they? Because they're what... all like West Coast fanatics. And that was like their yeah. first beers were like West Coast IPAs. Yeah, yeah. They all West Coast they found their, what, what was working well for them. Their water's perfect for, for what they do. Those, those nice soft beers. And yeah, that you found you carve your niche. And as I was saying, whether that's a... Your niche being your locale or your niche being a particular style. As when you start a brewery, you find what works, mm-hmm. uh, and you kind of run with that. Um, so it's an interesting one. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's cool to be dictated. I guess that's where the market dictates, doesn't it? Like the Oregon trails takes off. So you're like, well, why am I going to fight against this? I'm I'm going to move towards it, and it's beers yeah. that I love as well. <laughs> Did you find ever in the homebrew community was um, like New England styles? very prominent or were they actually quite uh not as common i guess uh i I feel like it's a yeah is is it like a divided kind of it's interesting i mean i I really feel for homebrewers these days because they've all become obsessed with trying to brew these hazy pals and they're really bloody hard really hard (laughs) (laughs) particularly like i remember um i used to bottle with a little bottling one and it splashed into the bottle when you put your cap on and it re-fermented and it was fine you know but if you do that with a new england you've got a a bottle of brown sludge yeah like well done uh so yeah i feel for homebrewers because that's kind of driven in a way uh, and homebrewers do absolutely obviously want to brew new england it's what they buy it's what they drip they buy from lights of track and verdant mm-hmm. and so on uh, so they want to brew them at home but that's really important to get your process right with that style of beer uh, and that's driven kind of a um if i talk to our local homebrew club now they've almost got pressurized vessels or they're doing closed loop transfers all the stuff that is a homebrew i'm like what i had a a bucket and a tap and that was it (laughs) and they've all got all this swanky stainless kit yeah just so they can master the the new england and not oxidize them it's Uh, quite interesting because i guess i guess those guys are gonna um those people are gonna like step up into a brewery with pretty tight yeah knowledge of, of 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 a bigger brew kit you know like I think so yeah and, and we're in the next couple of weeks judging our third homebrew competition at Elusive and for the past two years we've um, given like a style guideline here's mm-hmm. what you've got to make and the, but the beers that were entered last year the beer that won last year was a just a hot bomb of our IPA and the guys that came and brewed were almost obsessed with the technical aspects of the recipe to, yeah. to a point beyond almost beyond what I would go down you know it's really interesting like there are a lot of very very good homebrewers out there now yeah I think there was definitely that in the American beer culture there's a few I remember like Humble C Nick was a home brewer who's the head brewer over there and pretty, you know you look at photos of his early beers and there's these beautiful like bright light bulbs of uh new england ipas but i see it more now in the uk as well i see we yeah. you know we get tagged or whatever or, or and you like that that that's a hard thing to, to yeah create, it's really it? hard to get right you know, bit, it, people have got canning lines at home now this <laughs> is <just> mental <laughs> i think it's just that color isn't it and that like brightness like say it, introduce oxygen to that and it just dies yeah yeah 
So it's a, it's a hard thing. Obviously, they're probably pouring these super fresh, so you see the pores. <laughs> you see it on, I'm on, on homebrew Facebook groups, and people are like, oh, you know, my New England was fine last week, but now it's gone a bit. I'm like, yep. That's it. That's what I'll <laughs> Probably like does. 20, 30 PPB. Yeah. There, and it slowly just creeps. Like, yeah, it's, um, it's a tough style to get right. Really tough. Um, so, you know, you've, you've, you've built Elusive now. You've got um, a small team. You're talking about expansion and stuff. So, how does the next, you know, how does the future look for Elusive? You know, what what would you like to be producing? How do you feel that you're going to scale? Um, yeah, and what excites you? Um, I think the, when I started Elusive, um, I was adamant it was never going to be big, and I was never yeah. going to be managing a big team and be, um, you know, be kind of a, a people manager. Um, with, with a huge team of people. So I, I didn't really want Elusive to be big from the outset. But what we've achieved, particularly with Ruth at the helm over the past year, is another kind of 20, 30% growth with no extra capacity just by being smart about what we make and who we sell it to and, and how we package it and so on. Um, so this year, uh, we're now in uh, heading into September and we've just um, agreed terms on a unit next door. So we're going to expand, which gives us about... 60% more space than we've got now. Uh, so we're going to move the tap room, make that a bigger, more permanent space and add more tanks, which we can probably just about double our output um, with that amount of floor space. So, But I feel like it's getting near to the, almost near to the end game in terms of the size we want to be at that point. I'm saying that now in two years time, I might change my mind in two years time, we might not be here, who knows? Yeah. Um, but you know, because I'm kind of anchored in it, in it never being a big business, that yeah. that will always kind of draw me back to not making the, the huge seven-figure investments and in growing that kind of stuff. Yeah, will always be kind of small, and I'm I'm fine with that. I'm happy with that. You've ridden like this has been such a hard time. It still is, but like such a hard time to be a brewery. Um, and yeah, like maybe it's short-sighted to say we've come out the other side because who knows what happens tomorrow yeah. it's been a pretty wild like last five years or so um what would you put that down to um because a, a lot of breweries have not they've not made it not yeah made and it's it. very sad i think um for us we were i've always been quite risk averse um and we've never really borrowed any money i put the money in to start the business mm. that's the only money that's ever gone in to the business so Everything we've done has been organic and reinvestment. That's uh, apart amazing. from the van, we we bought a van. Yeah. Uh, Jane, my wife, was I was delivering beer in, in a clapped out Renault again, <laughs> and Jane rightly said this is not very safe, Andy, and and she we we she gave me the money. We bought a van, um, so that was the only other investment that's gone in. So um, I think um, we, we, when we went into COVID, we were uh, my part time brewer had just left. He left before Christmas. I'm not quite finished. Uh, building the team back again. Rick had just joined us on March the 1st of that mm -hmm. month. So he went on furlough. Um, so we went into COVID with um, no debt, um, cash in the bank and very little stock because my brewer had left before Christmas. So I just ran down what we had. Mm -hmm. um, so we were quite lucky in that sense. We weren't sat on a lot of stock and we weren't owed lots of money mm -hmm. by anyone. Um, and then I think from there, um, just a lot of support from people. A lot of that kind of, we, we did a... I really went back to my home brewing roots and we, we did this thing called Brew Your Own Elusive. And I released all our recipes and you could basically 
uh, brew your own and buy a bottle or buy six bottles or whatever. That's amazing. And home brewers were buying our beer and brewing them at home. Um, and we did it in partnership with the Malt Miller. They put kits you could buy, elusive spellbinder, shadow of the beast, level up, buy your own kit, brew your own elusive and, and support them. And that's what people did. So that got us through that kind of first few months. And we went from there really, started canning and things took off. So we, we ended up very fortunately, well, maybe not, maybe it was some good decisions were made along the way. Uh, but certainly a little bit of luck uh, yeah. ended up in you know surviving lockdown and coming out of it um, not in a bad position at all um, and still with a quite a healthy business so uh, we weren't didn't get caught up and we didn't need to borrow money with the bounce back loans and things like that which is what some people are now struggling to, to repay yeah. Um, so yeah I think some good decisions along the way a little bit of me being risk averse going into it and um, for those first three years before lockdown um yeah, I think um, for the future, I mean, I've always, we'll stay grounded. We're not going to borrow hundreds of thousands to, to, to manage our expansion. We'll do it bit by bit in our own time uh, and try and kind of stay in that position where we don't owe anyone. If we, if we have a bad month or two, no one's banging the door down to be paid. Um, and that makes your business life a hell of a lot easier. Yeah, I think... It was really good what you said then about making some good business because you, you could you could easily throw it away to just like look this and the other but decisions have to be made and I'm sure that someone you know, you know someone could have come in with a big wad of cash and been like oh I can see this business growing like do you want to sign the dotted line and then suddenly the pressure is on to yeah. to produce something um, why is it being so important for you I guess risk averse you kind of mentioned but why is it is there a sense of independence and, and just at the core of it, community that you want to keep going um, and that drives you? I think as, so, yeah. I think um, we, we have our offers of investment, yeah. not like InBev, but yeah. you know, local people that wanted to invest. And um, I don't know, maybe in future we'll give them the opportunity to do that in some way. But I like to always think that, I mean, Ruth, you know, as our MD, you know, I, I want her to be in control of what we do in the future. Um, and we're, you know, we want to be the ones making the decisions and yeah. having that kind of freedom to act on things that we feel are the right things to do for the company and not having that external pressure to generate so much profit or to grow to this amount or whatever yeah. or, or to return money to investors. Um, so having that freedom certainly takes a lot of pressure off, I think. Yeah, another voice around the table suddenly changes the whole dynamic of that it can situation. Do, yeah, definitely. And what a beautiful thing to say. You said, um, was it Emma, did you say? MD? Yeah, Ruth. Yeah. Ruth, sorry, my bad. Um, you know, you created something, but you have the humility, I guess, to see, to want someone else to grow and to shape the business that you began. Yeah, I think um, well, Ruth came in during lockdown. As um, we, we were chatting earlier over lunch and saying that she was furloughed from her role at Utopian. Um, who were a fantastic lager producer down in the southwest and um, I was struggling with home deliveries because we had so much support it was phenomenal and I just physically couldn't get out to do them all uh, so Ruth um, was a friend of mine who was like well can I come and help out mm -hmm. desperate to get out of the house and have an excuse to leave <laughs> to the house to go and do stuff so she came and helped and yeah, she came, joined us with um, like national sales manager level experience 13 years in the industry um, Worked for Adnams, work you know, work for national gym brands, work for you know, extensively far beyond the experience I've got. Yeah. Um, and and from a commercial point of view, it just makes sense to have someone that has got that knowledge and experience to to be at the forefront and to be the one that is making decisions. I, I'll be honest, we've 
I've, I've struggled um, to let go of it in some, in many senses, imagine, since, even since yeah. putting Ruth in the role. And I, we often, we occasionally butt heads where she's like, Andy, let me get on with it. And she's absolutely right. And I, uh, I've kind of had six years of running the business to suddenly go, actually, you run it. Uh, it's hard to let go in a way. It's like I made that decision in a way, but the back of my head is like, right, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing that? Ruth's like, look, just let me get on with it. And she's phenomenal. She's really, really good. And, and um, hopefully I'll, in time we'll just let her get on with it. And I think we, we've gone in the right direction um, in the past year since she's been in that role. And um, the, the, the numbers are there to support what she's doing. And um, this next kind of phase of our growth is me trying to just kind of, okay, you you make, you decide, you shape it. Yep. And me to try not to keep my mouth shut and try not to. <laughs> I mean, it's a hard <laughs> thing to do. Mind, but, um, yeah, it's, your, it's your baby, isn't it? It's, it's like, funny because I remember our first year, um, I had this, I'm a real numbers guy, spreadsheet guy. I'm like planned intimately uh, for the first year. I had numbers I wanted to, all this kind of stuff, business plan. Um, and I got to the end of that first year and we'd hit all these numbers and Jane, my wife's like, well done, like, so what's year two involve? I'm like, I've no idea. <laughs> <laughs> the spreadsheet doesn't have like, an extra tab, it's just this one. I just hadn't thought, like, let's, if I get to a year and I've done all these things, then we'll be good. Yeah. And then I got to the end of the year, I'm like, well, what do we do now? More, more of the same. Yeah. Uh, but what Roost done is give us um, a lot more strategy and a lot more kind of, you know, um, yeah, I, I guess a lot more commercial now, so a lot more planning. We, before lockdown, we never really had a brew schedule. I would come yeah. in, and what are we going to brew today? And we'd brew it and we'd sell it. Uh, and that's the, the power and the nice thing about being small. But now we've got, you know, the brew schedule's filled until December. It's like, you know, Christmas beers are planned. We've got ordering labels for the, the Christmas. But like, it's all like... We're, we're an organized business now, and that's yeah. down to Ruth entirely, so yeah. Yeah, I, that is an area of being a brewery that, you know, I've covered a few times on the podcast, but maybe doesn't get just, just the business sense. Like, yeah. we were exactly the same, just kind of flying by the seat of your pants, just like, what hops are in the back, you know, what mattered right a recipe on the day, you know, it's just, again, it's the beauty of being small, and it's yeah. fun, it's experimental. But as you employ people and as you grow... And as you want to grow, like having those things and then, you know, you can get the reliable data on hop contracts or things yeah. like that, yeah, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's bigger picture stuff that, that, you you know, you sitting there enjoying a beer at a homebrew club, maybe not, that's not the dream, is it? To think of those things. <laughs> <laughs> and your VAT return, definitely. Yeah, the VAT return, absolutely. Um, awesome. Thanks so much for doing this last minute, Andy. I really, really appreciate it. If you... If you kind of look, you know, we kind of had a little bit of how elusive looks for the next few years, but if you look at just like the beer scene as a whole, you know, in, 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 a, in a short kind of like paragraph or so, what, how do you see the next five years? Do you see any big developments in, in who's brewing what and what's getting brewed? I think, and I remember being asked this before lockdown, um, and things have maybe changed a lot since, but it, in a way support the view I had back then in that, uh, I mean, there's only so much market you can go into, and there's a lot of breweries, um, track size and, and bigger, that have kind of grown, and, and, and there's only so much market you can go into. And I think the the what you'll see is more and more of this kind of local. I've heard it called hyper local, mm-hmm. like focusing on your on your community and building that community space. And we were talking earlier about you know how do you get people on in on a Wednesday night? Let's have a book club. Let's have a running club. All that mm-hmm. kind of drawing more on the people that are within a mile of 
of the brewery and uh, making it feel like it's their own and their space. Uh, I think that's what we see a lot more of. And I think the advice, I mean, breweries open, like we, because of my journey and the fact that um, I was quite public and I blogged all about it, um, people come to me for advice on, I'm opening a brewery, what do I do? I always kind of, first thing is like, focus on local, like have, a, have a space, a tap room, think about that first and everything will come in behind that mm -hmm. uh, because that will always be a route to market for you because the other routes are really, really hard and, and difficult in many senses to get a grip on. So I think that's what we'll see is more, I still think um, there's room for more breweries and there will be more breweries, but I think the, that kind of small community um, model is the way forward. And I think we'll see more of that in terms yeah. of the overall trends in the industry. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I totally agree, but um, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because it it would be flipped, reverse that maybe ten years ago as a brewery. It's just brew beer, get it out the door, and yeah. get it into your local pub kind of thing. Yeah, Whilst I think now, ten, I think, maybe I think, ten years ago was interesting in that there was. I think the bar's really high now for quality. Yeah, way higher than it uh, than it's ever been, and that's a good thing for drinkers. Um, I think if you think back to twenty twelve, twenty thirteen, you could appear and make beer and it would sell um not all of it was good um i think back to the early london scene and not all of that was good um these days you've got to be good yeah uh, to get any kind of traction um on the national or even on your extended local stage so that's a real challenge but the homebrewers of these days are definitely up to that challenge is whether yeah. they've got the the nows to run a business and do that well yeah and and who they get on board with, you know, who you get on board with at the start, really. Yeah, <laughs> like who's yeah. who's putting money in? Um, awesome. Again, thanks so much for doing this. Very last minute, I know, um, but it's been great to chat to you, Andy. I think your story is such a such an inspiring one, and you know, putting people and community at the heart of it, I think is is a beautiful thing, and something that I hope that can carry. You know, that I think it's the thing that's carried craft beer forward, and I hope that it keeps carrying it forward yeah. um, so last question you're in a bar there's a TV in the corner it flickers on and it's a newscast saying an asteroid's about to hit earth <laughs> in the next hour and in this bar there's every beer that's ever been made or they can produce any beer that you'd like in an instant and the barkeep comes up and he slaps his hand on the, on the bar and he says what are you drinking? <laughs> so what, what is that beer for you? <laughs> what a question that is. Yeah. Right? Right <laughs> I was trying like, to like the desert island thing. It's been done so much. I was like, I was thinking, well, about, a should I ring my it. wife? Should I work? <laughs> no, you've got to have a beer first. Got to have a beer first. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Maybe she's with me. She's with me. She's yeah, with she's me. with you. She's right, with okay. you. Yeah. So I'll order her a drink as well. Um, yeah. Um, I, I think, um, God, what a great question that is. Um, I'm going to go with uh, Alpine Breweries Nelson. Uh, Alpine San Diego Brewery. Um, uh, they brew a single hop Nelson Rye IPA called called Nelson. Uh, absolutely beautiful beer, and it's been a um, been able to spend a bit of time in San Diego, and that's always a beer I seek out, and one that makes me smile for the whole time wow. I'm drinking it. So if I'm about to be ripped up by an asteroid, then I want a pint of Nelson in my in my hand. Smiling as you I'll drink I'll smile it. as I blow up. Yeah. <laughs> what a place to finish, <laughs> Andy. Thanks so much, dude. What Thank an honour. Thanks, mate. That's it. 
A massive, massive thanks to Andy for being so gracious uh, as to grant me an interview at the, the last minute uh, without any prior warning. Um, yeah, amazing to talk to Andy and hear about his journey and his passion for home brewing and brewing as a whole. A thoroughly lovely guy and the beer we've produced together, as I said in the intro, is something that I am very happy about. Uh, get out there, get a four pack, enjoy it, let us know what you think. And yeah, as ever, stay 